Foreign Relations uh, Committee will come to order. Today we'll consider the nominations of individuals to serve our country in two vital roles at the State Department. We welcome both of you and thank you for your willingness to serve. First, we have Clark Cooper, who had a distinguished career in the U.S. Army and currently holds the rank of Major. Major Cooper has been nominated to Assistant Secretary of State for, military, for Political Military Affairs, or PM. He currently serves as the Director of Intelligence Planning for the Joint Interagency Task Force National Campaign Region for the Capital Region for the Joint Special Operations Command. That's a long title. I hope you don't have to give that much. He has served in the Army on active duty since 2013 in a variety of reserve assignments since 2001. He's also worked in the State Department and Near Eastern Affairs and Legislative Affairs in Baghdad and at the United Nations. In addition to other responsibilities such as defense trade controls and security agreement negotiations, the Assistant Secretary for PM directly manages approximately $260 million in foreign assistance through grants, contracts, and cooperative agreements, while indirectly overseeing an additional $7 billion in foreign assistance. Major Cooper has demonstrated that he has the capacity to fulfill important responsibilities and manage others in a variety of high-pressure environments. He also understands the important role that Congress plays in authorizing and having the oversight of this portfolio. I believe he has the experience and ability to successfully direct the PM Bureau. Again, thank you for being here. Our second nominee is Mr. John Richmond. Mr. Richmond is a seasoned prosecutor and practitioner at the fight against modern slavery. If confirmed, Mr. Richmond would bring with him 10 years of experience as a federal prosecutor. During his time at the Justice Department, he helped to found the Human Trafficking Prosecution Unit. He also spent four years in India working on human trafficking issues with International Justice Mission. Senator Menendez and I wrote the bill that established the Global Fund to End Modern Slavery. In order to win this fight, we have to leverage investments by other governments with the private sector to fund projects that will eliminate modern slavery. We appreciate the administration's significant contribution to, fund that, fund, to a fund that attracted significant investments, including from the United Kingdom. We cannot forget that modern slavery exists because people profit from exploiting others. The victimization of more than 27 million people suffering in forms of bonded labor and sexual servitude around the world will not end until the impunity of exploiters end. We hope Mr. Richmond will, will speak to how he will lead the State Department's efforts to address that challenge, and uh, I think he's got an extraordinary background to be able to do that. I want to thank you again both for being here. I want to look forward to your testimony and our discussion of these issues, and now I'll turn to my friend and our distinguished ranking member, Bob Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, and to both of the nominees. Welcome to you and your families, and congratulations on your nomination. Uh, let me start with Mr. Richmond. You have an impressive background as a prosecutor bringing traffickers to justice here in the United States, so I want to start off by thanking you for your service and your lifelong dedication to these issues, something that the Chairman and I have a great passion uh, about. Recent reports from international organizations and civil society estimate that at least 40 million victims of human trafficking around the world, men, women, children, including people subjected to forced labor, sex trafficking, and forced marriage. The private sector accounts for about 40% of those victims. 
coercing people into making the electronics, clothing, and food that end up on store shelves across our country. Governments force around four million people to work around the world. Governments that should be protecting and empowering the most vulnerable members of their society. So if confirmed, you'll face an enormous challenge. As the U.S. Chief Diplomat on this issue, your efforts will require emphasis on each of the three Ps, prevention, protection, and prosecution. And while we must do more to put traffickers behind bars, we must be equally focused on preventing these crimes from happening in the first place and offering services to victims to rebuild their lives and protect them from falling prey to traffickers again. Critical to evaluating countries' efforts will be ensuring the integrity of the trafficking and persons report. Over the past few years, political interference has inflicted, from my perspective, immense damage on our ability to accurately report and rank countries on their efforts to combat human trafficking. Senator Corker and I, along with other members of this committee, have been working diligently to improve the credibility of this reporting process. So today I look forward to hearing how you plan to defend the ranking process from political manipulation. Finally, I hope that you'll explore ways we can better target traffickers where it really hurts, their bank accounts. Forced labor alone generates over $150 billion in profits annually, making it the second largest income source for international criminals next to the drug trade. And recent analysis from the Global Slavery Index estimates that over $140 billion in U.S. imports are at risk of being made to a system of modern slavery. We need a comprehensive whole-of-government strategy. Mr. Cooper, uh, the Bureau of Political Military Affairs is responsible for all forms of security assistance to foreign countries, including nearly $100 billion annually in arms sales and more than $5 billion in military assistance to foreign militaries. Among other worthy programs, political militaries charged with implementing programs to stop the proliferation of unregulated arms, including small arms and light weapons. With that directive in mind, I'm appalled at the recent actions by the department and by the political military section in particular, to allow the internet publication of blueprints for 3D printable firearms in the United States and around the world. Now, I acknowledge that you're not serving in the administration at that time when this decision was made, but as a security professional, I hope that when you get there, if confirmed, you're going, if this issue is still, look, is still raging, I hope you'll add uh, your experience to bear. I can only imagine the reaction of those charged with safeguarding public facilities as airports, schools, and courthouses to a dangerous and incredibly irresponsible action by the department. I take the committee's oversight of these programs extremely seriously. I personally review all proposed arms sales before they're submitted to the committee for the formal congressional review period. Weapons sales and military aid are U.S. national security tools that we should leverage to achieve our interests consistent with our values. Um, I'm frustrated that the administration has not uh, uh, articulated any comprehensive strategy for any region or any country, yet still insists on expediting arms sales. Finally, as manifested most recently in the conventional arms transfer policy, the administration has a troubling habit of downgrading a country's human rights practices and democracy as considerations, while charging the State Department to become more active agents of U.S. weapons abroad, often to governments with troubling records. I, I want U.S. companies to be able to sell what they produce anywhere in the world, but when we sell it to an end user, a country that uses it outside of internationally recognized standards 
and applicable law, that's a problem because then we're implicit in it. Human rights are not just a nice gesture. They're absolutely crucial to peace, justice, and the spread of democracy, and therefore stability around the world. We have to ask why we as a nation, uh, what we want America to be, a beacon of hope for the oppressed, or simply the biggest arms merchant to the world. These are the issues I look forward to discussing with both of you today. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, with that, uh, uh, we're glad to have you both here. If you would, uh, just in the order that, that I mentioned your uh, two nominations, if you would uh, summarize your comments in about five minutes, any uh, written materials that you'd like to make a part of the record, we'll do so without objection. And uh, Mr. Cooper, if you'd go ahead and begin, we'd appreciate it. Thank you, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Menendez, and distinguished members of the committee. It is an honor to appear before you today as the nominee for Assistant Secretary for Political Military Affairs. I'm humbled by the confidence placed in me by President Trump and Secretary Pompeo, and if confirmed, will be honored to work with the dedicated professionals at the Department of State. None of this would be possible without the very important people in my life who are here with me today. I am joined by my incredible spouse and fellow combat veteran, Michael Marin, my intrepid mother, Tracy Cooper Tuckman, my dear friends and esteemed colleagues, thank you for your love and support. For two decades, it has been a privilege to serve in many positions of responsibility and trust in national security affairs, ranging from tactical level bilateral security assistance work in Iraq to operational level intelligence planning with US interagency and among key partner nations, as well as strategic level multilateral peacekeeping mandate review at the United Nations. Over the breadth of my career, I have been fortunate to serve in civilian, diplomatic, and military roles. All these positions, including my diplomatic and military tours in the Middle East and Africa, comprise components of strategically aligned capacity building, intelligence, and security assistance with host nation governments and partner militaries. Each of these experiences provided opportunity to lead personnel and coordinate with foreign partners. One highlight of my career has been the work I have done to advance operational and strategic level engagement with the Department of State's Bureau of Political Military Affairs. I have seen firsthand the level of professionalism and experience the Bureau brings to the Department's political military work. My bilateral and multilateral work with partner nations on security assistance, intelligence, and force development has given me an applied application for the lead role the Department plays in development of security partnerships and advancement of U.S. national security. The Political Military Bureau executes some of our nation's most important policy decisions, negotiations, and treaties. The purpose-driven professionals in the Bureau are a unique mix of civilian, military, and foreign service personnel who negotiate our status of forces agreements globally, support humanitarian demining programs, promote professionalization of foreign militaries and interoperability through training and assistance programs and ensure our foreign military sales are consistent with our foreign policy and values. If confirmed, I look forward to the opportunity to work with such dedicated colleagues advancing the Bureau's significant contribution to our national security. The mission of the Political Military Bureau is to build enduring security partnerships to advance U.S. national security objectives. If confirmed, this will be my chief priority. I look forward to further connecting interagency, enhancing U.S. national and economic security interests, and enabling our partners. 
Our diplomacy is stronger when it is fully coordinated across the interagency and is synchronized with our military planning. An important function of the Political Military Bureau is managing the political advisors assigned to military commands around the globe to ensure full interagency coordination. Further, the Bureau plays a key transregional role in coordinating the department's strategic country plans, regional plans, and participation in military exercises to ensure U.S. diplomacy is at the forefront of our international relations. If confirmed, I commit to ensuring our sales of arms and defense trade are key implements of foreign policy where our relations with allies and partners and our commitment to human rights remain central in our decision making. The Bureau must also work closely with industry. Alignment of national and economic security interests to create jobs and increase U.S. competitiveness in key markets helps maintain a technological edge over potential adversaries while enhancing the ability of the defense industrial base. If confirmed, U.S. producers and exporters can be confident they have a partner in the Bureau who diligently supports them to advance our strategic objectives and support our economy. In today's complex environment, enabling partners' capabilities to address trans-regional threats is incumbent upon the Bureau to ensure there's burden sharing on maintaining global security Security assistance is a powerful tool the United States can apply to strengthen our allies and partners around the world and mitigate threats requiring collective response. I know firsthand from building surrogate forces and training partner forces, U.S. security assistance supports regional stability in the face of threats. Our dedicated assistance reassures allies and partners and provides the means for them to counter destabilizing and malign activities such as violence, extremist groups, and their spheres in a transregional context. Like you, I currently serve under the same solemn oath to the Constitution. Today, I serve at the Joint Special Operations Command, and it would be a tremendous honor to again further support and defend the Constitution of the United States at the Department of State. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, and members of the committee, I'm honored to be considered for this critical appointment. Thank you for the opportunity to appear here today, and I welcome your comments and questions. Thank you. Mr. Richmond. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Menendez, members of the committee, um, thank you for this hearing to consider my nomination to be the U.S. Ambassador at Large to monitor and combat trafficking in persons. I am honored and humbled uh, by the confidence President Trump and Secretary Pompeo have placed in me to, consider, to be considered for this position. As I begin, I would like to thank Carrie Johnstone and her team at the Office to Monitor and Combat Trafficking in Persons. Um, Carrie has led that office for over a year while they have not had an ambassador, and she and her team of career professionals have done an outstanding job. I also want to acknowledge that for the last 18 years, the office has stood as the leading government agency in the effort to battle traffickers. I'm grateful that the four living former trafficking ambassadors have offered their wise counsel and guidance should I be confirmed. I'm also thankful that my wife of 25 years is here with me, the lovely and talented Linda Marie, along with our three bright, courageous, and spirited children, Grace Lauren, James, and Mount, um, have made continued sacrifices for me to be able to do this work. Their support and prayers are, are very helpful, and I'm grateful to them. I also want to thank my parents who could not be here today. They instilled in me a strong work ethic 
a clear sense of justice, and a sustained empathy for those who are vulnerable. I also have friends here from high school, from college, from law school. Uh, to have lifelong friends is a blessing, and I have been uncommonly blessed. My introduction to modern slavery occurred early in my legal career when I was practicing law in Virginia. Uh, there was a new organization, a new anti-trafficking organization at the time, International Justice Mission, and they offered me an opportunity to go to India to work on labor trafficking issues. Soon my wife, who was eight months pregnant at the time, and our 14-month-old daughter found ourselves on a plane bound for Chennai, India, where we lived for a little over three years, working and focused on labor trafficking in brick kilns, rice mills, agricultural fields, and other facilities. And working on those cases in India taught me an incredibly important lesson. The fact that the reason we do this work is that every single person matters. The Declaration of Independence begins with this fundamental principle, that all have been endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. But the women and men who commit this crime specifically work to alienate individuals from those rights. The Constitution's 13th Amendment specifically outlawed slavery, and in 2000, through the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, Congress expanded those protections in response to traffickers' modern strategies to deny people's individual freedoms. C.S. Lewis wrote, the freedom of a creature must mean freedom to choose, and choice implies the existence of things to choose between. Modern traffickers work to deny people the option to choose. Many victims don't get to decide when they wake up, where they work, or who touches their bodies. When our time in India was over, I continued in the battle against trafficking as a federal prosecutor at the U.S. Department of Justice, working labor and sex trafficking cases in a victim-centered, trauma-informed way that always focused on the dignity of survivors. The year after I joined DOJ, I was honored to be selected to be a founding member of the Human Trafficking Prosecution Unit, and my work at DOJ included the United Nations portfolio where I worked on the implementation of the Palermo Protocol and training nonprofits, law enforcement, prosecutors, and judges around the world. Several of my fellow prosecutors are here today, and we have been in the trenches together, working cases in a victim-centered way to make sure that we secure convictions against some of the worst traffickers in the United States and seeing the inspiring story and resiliency of so many survivors. Almost two and a half years ago, I stepped down from my position at the Department of Justice to found the Human Trafficking Institute with other experienced trafficking prosecutors and law enforcement professionals. And with a deep bench of talent, the Institute is working on long-term projects to improve the delivery system of justice. My colleagues at the Human Trafficking Institute have graciously encouraged me to appear before you today and if confirmed to re-enter public service. Collaborating with survivors is critical to combating human trafficking. Throughout my work, survivors have taught me a great deal. They are key voices in developing effective anti-trafficking policies. But I have also learned a great deal from the traffickers, from the women and men who commit this crime about their methods and their motivations. Traffickers benefit from the persistent myths, for instance, too often media representations about trafficking ignore adult victims, labor trafficking victims, and those exploited in our own borders. Crimes of movement, like human smuggling, get conflated with crimes of coercion, like human trafficking. And this confusion benefits the traffickers because it inhibits victim identification. 
Traffickers also benefit from chronically low rates of prosecution. Many operate with impunity. Meanwhile, human trafficking victims are too often the ones who fear prosecution. The principle of non-prosecution of victims must be a promise and we must fulfill that promise. That individual victims should not be prosecuted for the unlawful acts their traffickers force them to commit. And I'm grateful for the survivors that have taught me these lessons, including the survivors who are here in this room today. This is indeed a special time in history. For almost 2,000 years, there's been some form of legal slavery. And just in the last 200 years, we've seen every country in the world pass some sort of law outlawing slavery. The question is, will those parchment protections of law be extended to the individuals they were intended to protect? I think this is a massive historic hinge, and I think the door of freedom is poised to swing wide. The trafficking office stands at a place, a critical role, to answer that question. And they've confirmed I will work tirelessly to fulfill the Declaration Self-Evident Truth, the 13th Amendment's mandate, and the Trafficking Victim Protection Act's promise. If confirmed, I will bring to this office my experience working on international and domestic cases, labor and sex trafficking cases, involving children victims, adult victims, citizen and undocumented individuals. If confirmed, I will work to ensure the continued integrity of the TIP report and make sure that it continues to be the gold standard for diplomatic relations regarding trafficking. And if confirmed, I will passionately advocate for the rights of individuals to be free from traffickers and for survivors to have access to the services that they need. Working collaboratively with this government, with this committee, with other governments around the world, with civil society, we will be able to answer that question and make sure that the laws, the protections of the laws are extended to the people who need them most. And we will do it because all people matter. Thank you for considering my nomination. I look forward to your questions. Thank you both. Without objection, I'd like to enter uh, into the record uh, an introduction that Representative Ross Lighton wanted to make herself. She couldn't be here, but we'll enter it uh, into the record without objection. Uh, thank you both for your testimony and for introducing your family and friends. And uh, with that, I'll turn to our ranking member and withhold my time. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for your statement. Mr. Richmond, uh, what is your view of the T visa as a tool to deal with trafficking victims? The trafficking victims' um, access to a T visa or a visa that allows them to stay in the country um, is a critical victim protection. Um, one of the incredible things about the Trafficking Victims Protection Act is it created two different systems. One is continued presence, which is status to remain in the country uh, while the trial is going on and so the investigation can occur. And that's initiated by law enforcement. But the, the, the T visa is a self-petitioning visa. It's a visa that trafficking victims can petition without necessarily having to go through law enforcement, although a law enforcement endorsement is often helpful. Um, we want to encourage t individuals to apply for T visas and are glad that they are able to get them. Well, I appreciate that answer. Uh, recently, the U.S. Uh, Citizenship and Immigration Service issued guidelines that will discourage many bona fide trafficking victims from applying for T visas. So if confirmed, I hope you'll bring your expertise to bear to inform them that that's not necessarily what we want if we truly want to ultimately uh, be able to deal uh, with uh, the challenge of trafficking victims who may be in the country but in an undocumented fashion. Um, what's your view on ensuring that merit alone and not trade or geopolitical considerations determine tier placements for countries in the annual TIP report? The, the Trafficking in Persons Report must be a fact-based report. 
I am committed to making sure that we have an evidence-based uh, approach to putting together the Trafficking in Persons Report, both in its rankings and its narratives, working closely with the regional bureaus to determine what those rankings should be. Um, but if it is going to be an effective tool, if it will continue to be the gold standard, it will be because everyone can rely on its integrity. Mm -hmm. So how would you handle a situation where, for example, trade or other considerations uh, threaten to influence the tier rankings, even though that particular country clearly is in violation of our laws in terms of what level they should be ranked on? Senator, I would approach those discussions very much like I approach very much like I approached cases as a prosecutor, and that is marshalling the information, making sure it's a fact-based determination, and being an advocate for the position of the office. Uh, it, is, it is critical that each of the rankings be, be made clear. One of the aspects I think could be helpful is making sure that the regional bureaus and others working on trade negotiations or other types of negotiations understood that a fact-based report could actually help them in that that adjustments in the facts don't actually improve bargaining position. It may actually um, make the foundation of those negotiations shaky. So you're advocate, you'll be independent in your advocacy based upon the law, regardless of other factors that others may consider. You'll be an independent advocate. You may not win the end of the day, but you'll be an independent advocate. Absolutely. Because uh, many of my colleagues and I believe that the State Department up and upgraded Malaysia, for example, to avoid my amendment that became law that would bar fast-track procedures for certain uh, trade agreements uh, because of Malaysia's poor record on combating human trafficking. I don't want to see that happen again. Would you agree that countries should be taking actions against both forms of trafficking, sex trafficking, and forced labor in order to meet the significant effort standard as defined in the Trafficking Victims Protection Act? Senator, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, as well as the UN protocol, protocol against trafficking in persons, requires a broad approach in fighting all forms of human trafficking, labor trafficking and sex trafficking, of any individual. And so we want to make sure that every country is evaluated based on their approach in handling labor trafficking as well as sex trafficking. I appreciate that because, uh, for example, in Cuba, uh, Cuba forces its doctors to go abroad and work uh, in other countries and then have their wages sent back uh, to the regime. And yet somehow we did not consider that a, uh, a labor slavery. So how we apply these laws have real consequences in real terms to people's lives across the globe uh, as well as to our own policies. Let me just turn a minute to uh, Mr. Cooper. Uh, Mr. Cooper. Uh, do you believe that human rights record of a recipient of U.S. security assistance should be considered before providing assistance? Thank you, Senator Menendez. It is a moral and legal obligation for us to consider it. So in short, yes, uh, it is a component uh, of every sale uh, and every transfer, and it is a broader consideration when we're looking at uh, any activity that is representative of our security interests but also of our values. Uh, the latest conventional arms transfer policy unfortunately took out the specific reference to human rights record of state recipients of U.S. security assistance. How will you ensure that U.S. security assistance is not used to perpetrate human rights abuses? Thank you, Senator. Uh, as far as the, the conventional arms transfer, uh, the processes are still in place, uh, and if confirmed, would ensure that, again, uh, it's not just a, a legal obligation, it's a moral obligation to ensure that that is a consideration uh, a transfer is not guaranteed, uh, training is not a guaranteed, and security assistance is not guaranteed. 
I have other quizzes, Mr. Chairman, but I'll yield, sir. Let me just mention before turning to Senator Young uh, to, to you, Mr. Richmond, I know that uh, we talked a little bit about this global effort to, uh, to end modern slavery that this entire committee unanimously supported and then was supported unanimously in the Senate. Um, a big part of that is leveraging other countries. With 27 million people enslaved around the world, uh, we have to lead an effort not unlike what was done with PEPFAR, where we bring other countries together with us. I know there's an effort right now by many to, to sort of split out what's happening into smaller components, uh, but that would lose the leveraging effect that we've been able to, to get with the United Kingdom and other large uh, private investors around the world that want to end modern slavery. And are, you're aware of the importance of leverage and the importance of bringing other countries together. And I assume we're also aware that if we dilute our effort into little micro elements, that leverage will never take place and will never bring the world community together to end modern slavery. Senator, I am familiar with the program to end modern slavery at the State Department and am grateful for your leadership and the leadership of this committee in getting that through, through Congress to, to establish that program. Um, the leverage piece is an incredibly significant aspect of that, and I have been encouraged by the Global Fund, the first recipient of the program to end modern slavery, and that it has, in its first year, um, have commitments to more than double the first $25 million um, tranche that has been extended. That is encouraging and powerful. The idea that there could be a PEPFAR-like fund to help combat trafficking is incredibly encouraging. I'm also impressed by the focus on metrics and measurement within the program to end modern slavery the requirement that we, that we push forward. Far too often, I think this movement has been motivated by anecdote and emotion, which can be quite powerful, but to have research and scholarship and metrics apply as well is very encouraging as we work to end impunity. I just would point out that because of what happened last year, $25 million went into a fund. The United Kingdom put in $25 million, and now there's a private individual in another country that's looking at putting in $25 million. So with our $25, we're going to end up with $75. Our goal is to end up with a billion and a half, as you know. But there are forces around here. When there's money uh, there, then people, everybody wants to participate. But if we, if we start losing that focus, there will be no leverage. And so we're tripling our efforts, it looks like. Matter of fact, if this next 25 ends up being placed in the same way, it looks like the United Kingdom's going to come in with another 25. So, so the leverage is phenomenal, but that goes away if we allow this effort to dissipate and be broken out into micro units. With that, Senator Young. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, Mr. Cooper, uh, welcome. It was, it was great visiting with you yesterday. As Assistant Secretary of State for Political and Military Affairs, uh, you'd have significant responsibilities as, as principal liaison to the Department of Defense, and you will provide uh, policy direction regarding defense strategy and plans. The 2018 National Defense Strategy, I, I think, is uh, fairly broadly regarded as a serious document uh, and an improvement on what we've seen in some prior years. As good as that document is, I, I think there's continued work that needs to be done with respect to uh, development of cyber strategy and doctrine. This, of course, is a timely topic uh, with all the uh, concerns pertaining to Facebook and Russia and uh, their past involvement, uh, their potential future efforts to undermine our democratic processes. 
I believe cyber threats have outpaced uh, our development of cyber strategy and cyber doctrine. And this is a tough area because there are a lot of ambiguities associated uh, with the nature of different threats. There's a lack of understanding about uh, uh, the uh, threats uh, and capabilities of our adversaries and even, even of, of partner countries. Um, oftentimes, uh, it's hard to source a particular attack, if you will, to a, a given geographic location, certainly at, at, the, at the exact time that uh, that attack occurred. So uh, I've just touched the surface of some of the complications associated with this. But the cyber threat is only going to grow, technology is only going to grow more sophisticated within this cyber domain. And essential, essential questions related to our, our strategy and doctrine uh, are unanswered. So um, our adversaries, uh, as we can see with Russia uh, in the latest news, uh, if, if, uh, if we can draw conclusions from those news reports, are clearly not yet deterred, at least not entirely, from conducting um, some sort of interference in our elections and in other areas. So to me, that speaks both to the need to develop cyber capabilities as well as the need for a clear strategy and doctrine, a signaling to uh, adversaries and would-be adversaries that uh, state and defense and other agencies of government have an important uh, uh, will will respond in, in, in an important and meaningful way uh, if we're on the receiving end of any attack. So, um, Mr. Cooper, to get to a question here, do you have any thoughts on the cyber threats uh, and, and the need for improved cyber strategy and doctrine in this country? Thank you, Senator Yen. I appreciate that question. Uh, do want to preface, as, as a uh, current member of the intelligence community, uh, as you noted, uh, there are malign actors, and, and Moscow is not alone. Uh, Russia is not alone uh, in wanting to degrade our capabilities, our status, uh, and our, our freedoms. Uh, that said, uh, there are other uh, allies and partners that are also targets. Um, uh, factoring our, our open fora that we're in here today, uh, happy to, to at least assess and note that from an interagency standpoint, having cyber strategy incorporated in broader strategies is not just limited to the Department of Defense or the Department of State. It is interagency. It is very well inclusive of the intelligence community. Um, the biggest challenge that we face today, uh, as I can state in this fora, is that we are up against actors that do not play by the same rules that we play. Uh, so it is a matter of being able to at least uh, address the threat uh, in a fashion uh, as we maintain our values, uh, but it would, it's, a, it's a whole of government effort. It, it's not limited to just one particular department or agency. State certainly has a lead role when we're looking at strategic interests because this is not limited to one geographic location. Yes. It's not limited to one malign actor. Uh, like physical threats, there's a trans-regional nature to this threat, and so it is certainly one that, from a, a macro standpoint, uh, would incorporate uh, all the parties that we've decided. Thank you. If confirmed, will you work with me on this important issue? Yes, Senator. If confirmed, I look forward to working with you on this issue. Okay. Thanks so much. A uh, couple of quick things I'll, I'll touch on uh, with uh, my remaining time. Um, you and I in my office, we discussed uh, some uh, statute, 22 U.S. Code 2378-1, uh, and this pertains uh, to arms export controls. Um, 
And the statute uh, says no assistance shall be furnished uh, to any country under the Arms Export Control Act uh, to any country when the government of such country prohibits or otherwise restricts directly or indirectly the transport or delivery of United States humanitarian assistance. Um, if confirmed, do you commit to doing all you can to ensure the department complies with this statute? Yes, Senator, if confirmed, I do. I uh, do want to uh, note that it, it is also uh, incumbent uh, upon us, uh, not only on the protection of human rights, but also ensuring to mitigate civilian casualties that falls well within the wheelhouse of provision of a humanitarian assistance. Okay, I'll be submitting uh, to you uh, for your response uh, in writing uh, an issue that's important to the state of Indiana related to the modernization of Humvees and um, uh, your, uh, your motivation to uh, comply with uh, the provision sections 1276 of the fiscal year 18 NDAA. Uh, I fully anticipate that you'll be supportive uh, of that. And lastly, I'd just like to give um, uh, a commendation to the Trump administration and specifically to uh, Vice President Pence uh, for their efforts related to returning uh, uh, the remains and, and being there to, to highlight the return of the remains of our uh, fallen servicemen and women uh, in, uh, from the Korean War. We have uh, thousands, thousands that remain unaccounted for, uh, including <laughs> roughly 150 Hoosiers, and um, I just think that's great that uh, this is a priority. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and congratulations to each of you for your appointments. You're very, very well qualified for the positions. Major Cooper, let me um, ask you about this. Um, I'm on the Armed Services Committee as well as Foreign Relations, and in the FY17 NDAA, uh, we received a request from AFRICOM to include a provision that would allow DOD to transfer funds to USAID and state to uh, deal with countering violent extremism. If the DOD viewed in a particular part of the world, and again, it was an AFRICOM request, that the best way to deal with violent extremism was not a military activity, but was state or USAID, with the sign-off of the SECDEF, that transfer can now be made. Um, unfortunately, the administration through OMB has been discouraging use of that transfer authority, either for reasons of, of proposing reductions of the State Department budget or, or otherwise. But given that this was a request from the Pentagon, uh, and given that this would uh, fall within your purview should you be confirmed, I would love you to commit to working with my office to encourage this kind of smart interagency action to use transfer authority where it's appropriate. Would, could you give me that commitment? Thank you, Senator. I do look forward to working with you if confirmed. And uh, we'll note in my current capacity uh, that uh, kinetic strikes and uh, kinetic activity is not the only component for countering violent extremism. There is a whole government approach that is required. Uh, this is something uh, that our command uh, ha has cited uh, many a times in, in open and closed fora. Uh, and it is certainly something not uh, uh, unique uh, as far as uh, addressing countering violent extremism. Uh, there are components that do require uh, other arms of government uh, to mitigate uh, and to prevent. I, I um, I'm very mindful being a budget committee member too that you know agencies ask for more money for themselves and so when a part of government comes to me and says we want to make it easier for us to transfer budgetary resources to another part of government I sit up and take notice because that's not usually what I hear and I would love to work with you on that I think that could 
assist in CVE operations on the state side. Um, if, if I could now, Mr. Richmond, one of the things that I really think is interesting about the TIP report and that, and that is particularly suited for your background is that uh, the U.S. is a hub for human trafficking and the TIP report, we're trying to be as honest and candid as we can about every nation, including ourselves. The TIP report involves a report about the status of human trafficking in the United States. You said that your work has dealt with domestic and international, child and adult. Uh, labor and sex trafficking. Um, talk a little bit about how, should you be confirmed, you might approach the issue of domestic uh, trafficking uh, using uh, the position to uh, assist law enforcement uh, agencies, NGOs, and others to reduce domestic trafficking in the United States. Thank you, Senator. I think that one of the unique aspects of the Trafficking in Persons Report is that it does include a narrative and a ranking for the United States. And the Trafficking in Persons Office um, serves um, as the leader of the interagency coordinating mechanism, the Senior Policy Operating Group, and also with the President's um, Interagency Task Force, bringing all the different components of the U.S. government together to discuss common efforts to combat trafficking. Um, I think it is helpful to highlight where we can do better. And the narrative for the United States highlights areas of deficiency, areas that we need to work harder at, while also celebrating the great successes um, that the federal agents and state law enforcement and prosecutors around this country are doing every day. Um, I think there, are, there is room to grow in terms of how we provide victim services, making sure that our policies are in alignment. Um, and I look forward to working with my colleagues at the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Justice, Health and Human Services, and other agencies to make sure that we have a, um, a seamless set of policies that make sure that we are protecting victims at every turn and trying to combat trafficking domestically. Thank you. You mentioned the President's uh, interagency task force. That task force has not yet uh, convened a meeting during this administration. It is chaired by the Secretary of State. Uh, should you be confirmed, I hope you will prioritize uh, getting that task force to meet. And it certainly is my sense, and I'd love your opinion on this, that that interagency task force is an important part of the effort to deal with trafficking both in the United States and abroad. Do you, do you share that view? Senator, I do share that view. I think the President's Interagency Task Force is essential, and it would be a top priority. I would hopefully be able to get a, a task force meeting before the end of this year. Um, obviously, if confirmed, I have to find out what the schedule are and make sure everybody can be there. But it is essential as we try to bring everyone together to combat this issue. Great. Thank you. And again, congratulations to both of you. Thanks, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both to both of you for uh, your willingness to serve. Um, uh, Mr. Cooper, uh, GAO has reported that in some cases uh, we get limited cooperation from recipient countries of military equipment um, with respect to end-use monitoring. The Arms Control Act uh, requires us to um, affirm that the end-use of the equipment that we're provided is as advertised and as requested. Um, so if confirmed, um, what tools do you envision being utilized in order to try to address these situations where we uh, have uh, difficult uh, sight lines on the back end of the transfer? And um, under what conditions um, would you recommend disapproving of a license application because uh, a country isn't um, giving us uh, the end-use monitoring um, processes um, or sight lines that we might want? Thank you, Senator, for that question. Uh, going back to something we uh, 
discussed earlier this morning is that uh, no particular transfer or no particular program is a guarantee. So from the, the end use monitoring aspect uh, would certainly be part of a consideration for a, a particular state that may have a, a renewed transfer or, or a renewed uh, a system that may be coming their place. Uh, this isn't just incumbent upon the country team located in that particular uh, state, uh, but there, that is a point of leverage that could be applied uh, on, on a future transfer. So there's no guarantee that uh, they would be in receipt of, of said system or arms. Um, thank you for, the, for that answer. Um, and as a follow-up, uh, I wanted to drill down on one particular part of the world in which we have um, very little sight on the end use of the arms that we are transferring, and that's Yemen. Um, Human Rights Watch has identified 85 different airstrikes that utilize uh, American equipment and American munitions, which may be categorized as war crimes. Um, and yet there seems to have been little effort on behalf of this administration or members of the coalition to do any assessment uh, as to whether those are truly human rights abuses, as many believe they are. Um, we've been told over and over again before this committee that we are in a process of trying to get the coalition to use our munitions uh, and use our refueling capacity uh, in a smarter manner, and yet at some point we have to believe what we see rather than what we're told. Uh, over the spring, civilian casualties were uh, worse than at any other time in the Civil War. Um, and I just might read to you and to the committee um, one recent readout from an investigative reporter who was on the ground um, in the last month or so uh, inside Yemen. This is from a reporter by the name of Jane Ferguson. She was heading to a refugee camp and she said, on the way to the refugee camp, several bridges have been bombed. Anger towards America is growing in rebel-held areas of Yemen. Most people here, whether they support the Houthis or not, know that many of the bombs being dropped are American. It provides a strong propaganda tool for the rebels who go by the slogan, Death to America. She quotes one uh, college professor who got his doctorate in the United States as saying, the missiles that kill us, American-made. The planes that kill us, American-made. The tanks, American-made. You were saying to me, where is America? America is the whole thing. Um, so uh, let me ask you about um, how you foresee um, serving in your role in a manner that would provide us uh, the evidence we need to assess whether or not war crimes, violations of human rights are being conducted with U.S. munitions in Yemen. It, it appears to me there has been no significant effort to undertake that survey. Uh, many of us would argue um, that, uh, in fact, uh, we are in violation of the Arms Control Export Act because of those uh, intentional uh, targeting of civilians. Um, but I'd like to know that you're going to take this seriously and try to improve uh, upon what has been, I think, a miserable uh, effort at oversight with respect to this particular series of sales. Thank you, Senator. And if confirmed, absolutely, we'll take this seriously. It's not uh, just a matter of uh, defense actions or kinetic actions by the coalition uh, supporting the, the legitimate Yemeni government. Uh, there is a, an intelligence component there as well to, to factor in as far as uh, the status uh, of these strikes. So it, it certainly is something that needs to be looked at from a holistic aspect. Uh, and state, uh, having that policy lead, uh, has that capacity to, to take to take rein on that. But how do you actually go about um, coming to a conclusion? Um, so you have, you know, as recently as a week ago, another water treatment facility being bombed outside Hudaydah. 
One side says it was bombed intentionally, the other side apparently says it was a mistake. But these disputes continue to happen and there seems to be no effort to resolve it. How does, how does your department go about doing an investigation when we don't have a country team on the ground? Correct, so there, there is an opportunity for state, again, as the lead policy role uh, from an interagency standpoint to coordinate, not just with defense, there are other uh, entities and agencies out there, and again, I cite the intelligence community as a, as a resource on information uh, because there are some uh, points of reconciliation, as you, as you noted, uh, because there's differing data that's been supplied either by the Houthi rebels uh, or those on the ground. And so, yes, there is, there's definitely some conflicting information that would benefit uh, from a consultative process uh, through the interagency uh, with state's lead. Well, you're already a skilled diplomat. Uh, I look forward to working with you uh, on this, and I thank you for your attention to it. <laughs> Senator Shane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Congratulations to both of you on your nominations, and um, I look forward to working with you, if confirmed, to address the, the very critical responsibilities that you both have in the offices that you would be assuming. Um, I want to continue on the questions about Yemen because, as I'm sure you're aware, Mr. Cooper, this committee passed a bipartisan resolution that Senator Young and I sponsored. Um, it had very strong support that would prohibit our military from continuing to provide aerial refueling support for the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen unless the Secretary of State repeatedly certifies that the governments of Saudi Arabia and the UAE are taking steps to end the civil war in Yemen to alleviate the humanitarian crisis there and to reduce the risk to civilians posed by military operations. Now, as we know, and based on what Senator Murphy had to say, um, clearly there are major challenges that affect all of those areas still occurring in Yemen. So if confirmed and once this defense bill passes, which I expect to be this week, how will you, in your new role, how would you approach making sure that those certifications had been made by the Secretary of State and that we are um, working with our allies to ensure that they comply with um, international and humanitarian law? Thank you, Senator. I appreciate that question. And yes, if confirmed in my capacity, it is flexing the muscle of state's lead role in the interagency. Uh, there is, from, from a ground perspective, as you noted, there are some other challenges there uh, beside the Civil War uh, that factor uh, into uh, the current uh, kinetic environment there. Uh, there are multiple uh, violent extremist organizations and al-Qaeda affiliates that are trying to take advantage of what they would perceive as a permissive environment. So uh, it is a, a complex uh, environment, to say the least, uh, but it does not preclude us from ensuring that humanitarian assistance gets through to those who need it the most, and it does not preclude us from ensuring that there is a reduction and mitigation of civilian casualties. Well, I would argue that the language in the defense bill actually urges us to ensure that our allies are um, working to reduce casualties and to comply with what is international law and to try and end the conflict there which they have, to date, not been very um, working on in a very robust way. So I would urge you to think about it from a positive aspect rather than it not precluding us. It, it tells us we, we must do that. Do you not agree? 
I agree, Senator, and it is not, from a positive aspect, it's a point of leverage as well. So uh, issues in the region are not mutually exclusive of each other, uh, and the Emiratis and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia are aware of that. So it, it does provide us uh, some leverage on multiple points uh, because rules of engagement are, it's requisite that we avoid civilian casualty. It is requisite that we get humanitarian assistance through. Thank you. Um, another provision in that defense bill, um, again, is bipartisan that would prevent the transfer of F-35 Joint Strike Fighter aircraft to Turkey until the program in Turkey is reevaluated. And given the Turkish government's stated intent to purchase the Russian S-400 air defense system um, and the fact that the government continues to hold American citizens against their will. Can you talk about how you see that language moving forward and what you would do in your role to address what's happening in Turkey? Thank you, Senator. Uh, safe to say Turkey is a difficult partner uh, but they are a partner. Uh, they remain a NATO partner. They remain a, a counterterrorism partner, and particularly on, on combating ISIS and the facilitation of ISIS. Uh, and as you noted, uh, a sale something like the S-400, that, that would be catastrophic uh, for us. However, it doesn't give Ankara a pass. Uh, it doesn't give them a pass on, uh, on incursion on human rights issues. It doesn't even give, give them a pass on imprisoning uh, a fellow American. Um, but it, it, does, it does make it uh, challenging for us to be able to maintain that bilateral relationship because walking away from that would be of great uh, impact and would be catastrophic. But it does not preclude us from pressing on, on Ankara to uh, meet commitments, uh, to meet bilateral requirements that are our priority. Well, I certainly agree. I think Turkey is a very important ally, and we've had a relationship that has been important both to Turkey and to the United States and to the region. But can you talk about the, the technical challenges of having a NATO ally like Turkey have in place the S-400 defense system at the same time they are using the F-35 or getting the F-35? What kind of technical challenges does that pose? Aside from equipment operation maintenance challenges, the, the technical challenges that is the supply aspect of it. What we don't want is we do not want a NATO ally to be dependent upon the servicing and supply of, a, of a equipment that's provided by Russia. That is a, a, from a, a operational standpoint. Uh, from a strategic standpoint, we don't want a NATO ally to have a weapon system supplied by Russia. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Cooper, today the downloadable gun promoter defense distributed plan to post online its blueprints for making deadly, undetectable, and untraceable plastic weapons using three-dimensional or 3D printers. If not for the efforts of eight attorneys general, including Mara Healy, the attorney general from my own state of Massachusetts, anyone, including criminals and terrorists, would now be able to download a computer file and print a semi-automatic weapon. Thankfully, yesterday, a federal judge granted the attorneys general request for a temporary restraining order to stop the online publication of blueprints for 3D printed guns. 
which was only possible because the Trump administration sanctioned it. Mr. Cooper, if you are confirmed as the Assistant Secretary of State for Political Military Affairs, you would be in charge of the Directorate of Defense Trade Controls, which is at the center of this national crisis. In 2013, the Trade Controls Directorate concluded that posting these blueprints online and making them available worldwide violated federal export controls. But in a head-spinning reversal, now the office has rubber-stamped the Trump administration's plan to allow the blueprints online. Mr. Cooper, I'd like to know whether you recognize the consequences of this decision. Last year, ISIS encouraged recruits in the United States to exploit American gun laws by buying firearms online and at gun shows to avoid a background check. Do you agree that ISIS recruits would probably avoid buying guns online or at gun shows if they could print them at home instead? Senator, thank you for that question. I understand the concerns noted by you as well as the president. From my personal experience uh, in non-permissive environments, I certainly uh, have been in the space and in the place of on the receiving end of the of proliferation of, of weapons, uh, especially small arms. So from a personal experience, uh, the proliferation of small arms is, is of concern. Having not been in the department privy to the details on the, the legal aspect uh, of the, the directorate Determination. I'm my asking understanding. you a different question. The question is, uh, be, let's just say that because of the Trump administration's decision to allow downloadable guns, ISIS begins to encourage radicalized recruits to carry out lone wolf attacks with 3D printed AR-15s. Wouldn't that pose a threat to public safety if they could do that? Any tactic, technique, or procedure that could be applicable to any ideologue or jihadist extremist uh, is, is a threat. That could be a truck driven down the street. That could be any weapon of choice. Uh, so any tactic, technique, or procedure could be a threat uh, as applied in the hands of a lone wolf attacker center. Now what about um, school children? In the wake of tragedies at Parkland and Sandy Hook, there has been much talk about hardening our schools and installing metal detectors at building entrances. A plastic gun will not set off any metal detector, would you agree that undetectable guns imperil the lives of the children of our country? Any unregulated access to weapons uh, or proliferation of weapons is, is, is a, a, a risk and a challenge to security. Yeah, well, um, you're exactly right. And I went to sleep last night hoping that President Trump would uh, exercise his power to just stop the implementation of this new policy which Secretary Pompeo and Secretary Sessions signed off on, but they did not. It took a federal judge in Washington state in order to accomplish that goal. It has national security and international security implications. Now, I appreciate the fact that you are not the person who made this terrible policy, but you are asking us to confirm you to a position where you will be defending the indefensible. Whether ISIS be here or ISIS be overseas, this new era has now opened. Uh, and from my perspective, 
until the president agrees to reverse this policy and prohibit the online publication of these dangerous blueprints to make plastic guns that can kill people here and in overseas that are undetectable and uh, are not subject to uh, licensing, uh, that uh, this is a decision the president should make. You are going to be given the job of implementing this existing terrible policy until that policy changes. Uh, I intend on placing a hold on your nomination. Uh, I expect the uh, president to change that policy and to give you the tools which you need to protect against the proliferation of weapons uh, now being downloaded across this planet. And I, I appreciate the position which you're in, but you now represent a very flawed, indefensible policy which President Trump is allowing to be put on the books. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Just a couple more questions. Let me follow up, Mr. Cooper. Uh, on the subject matter that uh, Senator Markey raised, uh, you're not responsible for the decision, and I understand uh, the Senator's view about making a statement with the administration and getting them to change course, which I share in terms of getting them to share a course. But I want to know uh, more uh, for the purposes of your nomination. Um, do you believe that the publication of these blueprints for uh, internet publication of blueprints for the manufacture of 3D printed plastic firearms is a significant threat to U.S. security interests both at home and abroad? Thank you, Senator. Any proliferation of information that would uh, chip away or degrade uh, our national security or actually our, our technology, so our, our technology primacy uh, is, a, is of issue. I understand in this particular case that on the computer-aided design that as far as unique technologies, that was an issue. However, uh, there are broader uh, whole-of-government aspects to this that go beyond a particular unique uh, intelligence or unique uh, technologies. Okay. This is, let me just share with you because I'm, I'm favorably inclined to your nomination, but this is where nominees get in trouble. Um, I understand your answer that any proliferation, I get it. But I'm asking you specifically, I'm not asking you about the policy, I'm not asking about the administration's decisions. I want to understand how you, if I vote to confirm you sitting in that position, will think and advocate, as I asked Mr. Richmond about things if he's sitting there and there are other considerations, how he will think and advocate. That's the only way in which I can judge a nominee at the end of the day. Because once I vote for you and you're confirmed, uh, then we're off to the races. So let me try to, uh, once again, with that preface, do you, if, if the injunction that presently exists is lifted, there's an injunction by a federal judge. Let's say that injunction is lifted. You're confirmed and you're sitting at the, in the PM Bureau. Would you advocate to suspend the regulations to allow 3D gun production information to be distributed worldwide to terrorists, extremists, and criminals? Senator, thank you. If I, if confirmed, it'll be incumbent upon me and I would push to ensure non-proliferation. It's not just large weapon systems. It is small weapon systems. And as I said, I've been in a personal recipient on the opposite end of such weapons. So I, I would be a, a strong advocate to ensure non-proliferation. So that is inclusive of small weapons. Okay. 
And would you specifically, and I appreciate your service and the harm that you put uh, yourself in, in in defense of the nation, would you specifically also, as part of that proliferation, say that the internet protocols that creates 3D gun production is among that proliferation? There are, Senator, it's not exclusive to a particular platform. To be, to be fair, to, to answer your question, it would be I, I, not limited said, to internet, it, internet said, download. Would it include, I didn't say was it oh. exclusive of, it could be inclusive of, sir, Senator, yes. Thank you very much. I'm trying to help you. Uh, let me ask, go back to Mr. Richmond. Uh, I, I think that your depth of knowledge is incredibly great. It's one of the better nominees that we've had. This actually, this both set uh, that we've had before the committee, but I want to focus on two things. Prosecution is incredibly important, but I want to get your commitment to this committee that prevention and protection of victims is also going to be an equal emphasis if you are confirmed. Thank you, Senator. The paradigm that has been used uh, by the United States and has been embraced around the world is for a 3P paradigm, prevention, protection, and prosecution. And instead of them being three silos, I think they're really three legs of the same stool. They're all necessary and they're interconnected. When we prosecute um, perpetrators, it is essential that survivors get services. Um, in order to reduce vulnerabilities, we reduce the number of individuals who might be um, likely to be trafficked. All these things fit together and are essential. The criticism of an overemphasis of prosecution I don't think is borne out by the numbers. There's a chronically low number of prosecutions, especially in labor trafficking cases. And I think we need to increase those prosecutions, but we need to do it in a way that also highlights the fact that we have to have robust, tailored, and holistic survivor services that can care for people who have experienced trauma, as well as education and awareness efforts. There, there's been a comment that awareness campaigns don't um, rescue anyone, um, but the reality is no one is helped or rescued without awareness first coming. And so I would be committed, if confirmed, I'm, to a I, holistic approach. I, okay, I appreciate that, because I, I'm not, I'm not a, uh, uh, a critic of prosecution on the contrary, I embrace it, but I also understand there's three legs to the stool and we need to equally apply the other two. Finally, uh, Central America. Just let me hear briefly what your view is about the Central America crisis because uh, I want to know the narrative that you will bring to this job as it relates to those uh, who are fleeing from Central America and who are enormously can be exploited in trafficking, and many are. Thank you, Senator. I've worked many cases with uh, victims from Central America and have it's been a keen uh, area of interest of mine for some time. I think that robust engagement with, with Central America, particularly the Northern Triangle, although I think it's to everyone's detriment not to include Belize in that discussion, given its porous border with Guatemala and close connection to Honduras. I think each of these countries are essential and to have, um, both through our bilateral engagements regarding the Trafficking in Persons Report and the narrative, as well as international programming efforts to bolster government's ability to answer that question I mentioned earlier, to actually deliver on the protections of law to the individuals, um, are essential um, in building up civil society's response in order to care for survivors. I just, I just hope that you'll keep, uh, if you're confirmed, you'll keep the narrative honest because many people fleeing Central America, their choice is to stay and die or flee and have a chance at living. And those who get trafficked along the way, they need to be protected just as much as anybody else. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Cardin. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I want to follow up on Senator Menendez's first question. So he asked both of you 
one in regards to not compromising the integrity of the traffic in persons report the other dealing with the human rights in regards to arms transactions and i appreciate both of your responses and they're, they're the responses i hope to receive but mr richmond let me start with you first in the previous administration we were hampered in getting the unfettered recommendations that were made through the chain uh, because the decision was contrary to those recommendations made at a higher level. You don't make the final decisions on the, on the rankings. We know that. And at times, what you recommend may not be what the final recommendation is. And then you come before us and say, well, you can't talk about the internal discussions that take place within the executive branch. And we respect that also. But we need a commitment from you that you will give your, your views on this directly to this committee so that we can oversight how the trafficking decisions are being made. So do you commit that uh, upon a questioning to us that we will be able to get the direct information that you have in regards to the rankings so that we can provide the proper oversight to how the law is being implemented? Senator, I am grateful for you raising this issue. Uh, the fact that this committee has such a vigorous oversight into the TIP report actually advances our ability to argue for accurate rankings. Um, and I commit to you, if confirmed, to be a vigorous advocate within the Department of State for the position of the TIP office uh, to make sure that these are fact-based rankings and narratives. Uh, I'm also interested in a continued dialogue with this committee. I know that interim briefings have occurred um, throughout the year regarding countries' progress at a bit of interest to this committee. I'm interested in continuing that practice to make sure that there is a free flow of information. And I look forward to appearing before this committee, if confirmed once again, to discuss the rankings um, and to make sure that you all are comfortable with and understand how the, how the decisions are made. Well, that's not exactly what I want to hear. Uh, I understand what you're saying. And certainly we will protect your confidentiality in the internal process within the executive branch, but we need to get source information to do our oversight. And we depend upon the person who's responsible for that, which is you, in regards to the recommendations made by the mission and country, uh, in regards to how the uh, the deputies, the, the regional secretaries, et cetera, have come through this. We need to be able to get the source information to evaluate how the law is, is operating. And quite frankly, it was difficult under the Obama administration to get that. It was in regards to the, the cases that we're talking about. We think we got it. Just took us a little bit longer to get the information than we would have preferred. And we've looked at some statutes. We respect the separation of branches, but we have a responsibility. And it's, in, your, in this hearing, it's important that we know that we're going to be able to get the information we need to carry out our oversight function. Senator, I look forward to making sure that I provide all the information that you need to carry out that oversight function. Mr. Cooper, the same thing is true on arms issues. I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with the executive branch where I ask them to raise human rights issues because of what you just said. It's a, it's a factor in, in, in making these decisions. And uh, it, it, it seems to get lost. We, are, we, we ask for modest advancements, and sometimes we can't even get modest advancements on, on, on these issues. 
So, so I asked you the same question. I understand that the internal decisions are made and how they're made, but we need to have a clear conversation as to carrying out what, what you just said, one of the major factors is to advance American values, which are human rights issues, and spelled out in several of our uh, statutes that we have, that, that we'll get that honest dialogue and input so that we can use every leverage we can to advance human rights. Thank you, Senator. And as, as you noted, it's well beyond statute. It's a moral imperative. Uh, no sale is a guarantee. No transfer is a guarantee. And, and no particular training package or security assistance is a guarantee. Uh, our country has suspended or taken away uh, training programs or sales or transfers, and that is certainly uh, a point of leverage for us. Uh, and that factor uh, will be just that. It will be a point of leverage. But there's times that you need congressional understanding in order to proceed. And that's based at times upon getting understandings about human rights advancements, which don't always happen. So we need a clearer communication so that the leverage of the congressional role assists you in accomplishing the human rights advancements. And thank you very much, Senator. If confirmed, I look forward to, to having that, that back and forth discourse and also being able to support each other and bolster each other uh, as we represent the U.S. together abroad. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Just a couple of quick questions. Major Cooper, if you confirm, will you commit to preserve and protect the established informal notification process to the chairman and ranking member of the committee for all U.S. arms sales that require formal congressional notification under the law? Mr. Chairman, thank you for raising that. As just shared with Senator Cardin, I look forward to having an ongoing dialogue uh, with you and with the committee and the committee staff. I am quite used to spending time on Capitol Hill. I consider it very much a part of this position, if confirmed, to spend a good amount of time uh, with you and your colleagues and the staff on these issues before the department. But it's a yes or no question. <laughs> I do look forward to maintaining that informal dialogue as well as the formal, so that's all-inclusive, Senator. Thank you. Do you believe the Department of State is ideally organized to manage its security assistant pro assistance programs as well as oversee the Department of Defense's security cooperation and security assistance efforts? Mr. Chairman, the, Senate, the, the department is the lead because it has that, that hub-and-spoke capability as far as the interagency. So, yes, uh, it is the lead for the government. Uh, that said, I look forward to getting the Bureau, at the Bureau level, uh, staffed and resourced up to the uh, appropri appropriations level that were authorized uh, for the Bureau. Well, with no further questions, I, I do want to say I'm very uplifted by the quality, the background, uh, the experience that both of you have had, and I, I think you're outstanding nominees, and I look forward to doing everything I can to help you be confirmed in a speedy way. I want to thank you for your commitment to our country and your willingness to serve in this regard. And uh, we're going to leave the record open until the close of business tomorrow. My sense is uh, you'll want to answer those questions fairly quickly if any come in. Um, seeing no further questions, um, the committee is adjourned. Thank you.